We are looking this afternoon at Article 12 of the Belgic Confession, found on page 58 in our Three Forms of Unity book, Article 12, the creation of all things, especially the angels. We believe that the Father, by the word, that is, by his Son, has created of nothing the heaven, the earth, and all creatures, when it seemed good unto him, giving unto every creature its being, shape, form, and several offices to serve its creator, that he also still upholds and governs them by his eternal providence and infinite power for the service of mankind, to the end that man may serve his God. He also created the angels good to be his messengers and to serve his elect, some of whom are fallen from that excellency in which God created them into everlasting perdition, and the others have, by the grace of God, remained steadfast and continued in their first state. The devils and evil spirits are so depraved that they are enemies of God and every good thing, to the utmost of their power as murderers, watching to ruin the church and every member thereof, and by their wicked stratagems to destroy all, and are therefore by their own wickedness adjudged to eternal damnation, daily expecting their horrible torments. Therefore we reject the, and abhor the error of the Sadducees, who deny the existence of spirits and angels, and also that of the Manichees, who assert that the devils have their origin of themselves, and that they are wicked of their own nature, without having been corrupted. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the article has three paragraphs. This article of the Belgic Confession on the creation that God has made is three paragraphs. The first dealing with the creation of all things. The second with the creation of the angels and the fall of Satan and his angels. And the third... Uh, being a rejection of the errors of the Sadducees and of the Manichees. And we're, we're going to follow that same division of material in our discussion this afternoon. But we're also going to go a little bit beyond what the article covers because there is at least one very important matter in our own day that the article does not touch on, and that is, of course, the whole idea of evolutionism. That uh, teaching of evolutionism followed the writing of the Belgic Confession by about 200 years, and so there was no such a teaching existent in the days that the Confession was written, and it's necessary for us, therefore, to uh, talk about that as well. A doctrine of our own day, extremely popular in our own day, of course, that denies that the God created the heavens and the earth. So let's begin then with that first paragraph, God the Creator and His work of creation. I think we may point out uh, that there are really four things that the confession says here about the doctrine of creation. First of all, the confession points out to us that the work of creation is a work of God by the Word, that is, by His Son. So it speaks of God creating by the Word, that is, by His Son. And of course, when the 
confession says that God created by the word, it's um, alluding to John 1, where we read that by him, that is the word, all things were created. And that word then is the one of whom John says later in that same chapter that he tabernacled among us. He is therefore our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in this context, the confession means the eternal and only begotten Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. But there are other scriptures also which teach that our Lord Jesus Christ participated in the work of creation. Colossians 1, verse 16, is one of these places. Colossians 1, verse 16, where we read this. The apostle is is pointing us throughout this uh, context to the glory of Christ. And he says this in verse 16, For by him all things were created, that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. So he participated in the work of creation. Also in Hebrews chapter 1, where We read of God's speech to us through his Son, and part of his speech to us through his Son was that through him also he made the worlds. Hebrews 1 verse 2. Now the confession mentions only uh, the Father and the Son, but we know that the Holy Spirit also participated in the work of creation. In fact, it is the Holy Spirit rather than the Son who is mentioned in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, we read there. The Spirit of God is there shown to us to be the one by whom God created the world. His power was manifested in the Spirit's hovering over the face of the waters. And in Psalm 33, verse 6, We have this, by the word of the Lord, and that's, we could take as a reference to Christ, right? By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath or spirit of his mouth. The word for breath in the Hebrew is the same as the word for spirit. So we could read spirit there and perhaps even should read spirit there. All the host of them by the Spirit of his mouth, the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. So the work of creation is a triune work. It's not a work of God the Father, though we speak of God the Father and our creation. It's not a work exclusively of God the Father. The Son and the Holy Spirit were also involved in the work of creation. All of God's works, in fact, are triune works. Though we say that we speak of God the Son in our redemption, nevertheless the Father and the Holy Spirit are work at work in that also. And though we speak of the Holy Spirit and our sanctification, still the Father and the Son have their role in that. None of the works of God are exclusively by any single person that belongs to the Godhead. 
Father is the cause, origin, and beginning of all things. The Son is the word, wisdom, and image of the Father. That powerful word by which God accomplishes his works. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son and is the eternal power and might. So the God, triune God, is creator of the heavens and the earth. The second thing that the article says about the creation is that God created from nothing, has created of nothing the heaven, the earth, and all creatures. And of course, uh, this is a, a standard confession of the Christian church for many centuries, that God's original creative work, anyway, is a creating of nothing. He did not cause the creation to emanate from his own being, as some of the early heresies taught. He did not bring the heavens and the earth into existence from pre-existing matter that somehow he shaped or conformed to the way that we know them now. Before the heavens and the earth were, only God was. And he spoke his mighty word and brought the heavens and the earth into being out of nothing from that mighty word. But this confession that God created from nothing is, has to be understood to be uh, somewhat limited in scope. God did not create every individual creature from nothing. We know from Genesis 1 verse 1 that he created the heavens and the earth from nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It seems likely, anyway, that God created the light from nothing. Genesis 1, verse 3, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. It may be that he created the firmament from nothing. Verse 6, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let, the, let it divide the waters from the waters. And he may have created the sun, moon, and stars from nothing. We read about them in the 14th verse, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. But when we look at the other creatures of God in this first chapter, we find that they were formed from the original matter that God created from nothing. When God created the earth at the beginning, that earth we read in uh, verse uh, 2 was without form and void. And it seems also from that verse that the whole of the earth was covered with water. So there were no individual creatures, there was just the earth, and it had no form, and it was void, it was empty, therefore there were no creatures in it, and then it was covered over, it seems, with water, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. But God then began his work of drawing out of the existing matter new creatures, And so he created the dry land on the second day by gathering the waters into one place. 
The land already existed under the waters, but he gathered the waters into one place and created dry land. He brought the plants and the animals out of the earth. The earth brought forth the plants and the animals. The waters brought forth the fish and the birds. And especially with regard to man, we read, the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So, yes, he created from nothing, in part. Other creatures he created from his original matter. That's the second thing, then, that the article says about creation. The third thing is that he did this when it seemed good to him. He has created of nothing the heaven, the earth, and all creatures when it seemed good unto him. He was governed only in his work of creation by his sovereign good pleasure. There were no outside influences that uh, affected his decision to create the heavens and the earth. There was no internal necessity that drove him to create the heavens and the earth. It was all according to his own sovereign good pleasure. He was abundantly sufficient to himself. He has no need of his creation. But he chose in his sovereign good pleasure to create. And the time of that creation was also according to his own determination without external influences coming to bear on him. He did his own good pleasure, therefore, in the creation of the heavens and the earth. And the fourth thing that the article says is that he gave to each creature its being, shape, form, and several offices. I think each of those words that the confession uses is significant, and so I want to take a little time to discuss those words. First of all, he gave to each of his creatures being. That is, he gave to each of the creatures that we read about in Genesis chapter 1, existence. He created the heavens and the earth. He created the sun, the moon, and the stars. He created the cows and the elephants and the whales and the trees and the flowers and the dirt all the different creatures that we read about there in Genesis 1. He gave to each one its existence. He also gave to each its shape. And I think we can take that word pretty literally. He gave to each creature the, the visible aspects of its being. He made man to be an upright creature with two arms and two legs and a nose and two eyes and, and hands and fingers and, and so on. And he gave to the elephant its shape and to the sun its shape. Each creature has its shape from the hand of the Creator. 
But he also gave to each its form. And I, I think, perhaps, that this is not just a synonym for shape, but uh, meant to be a little bit, go a little bit deeper. That he gave to each of his creatures its unique character. And it's what distinguishes it from every other creature. And so the cat is not the dog, but has its own unique character, distinct from the dog and from the tree and from all the other creatures. And each creature then has its own unique character, its own unique um, uh, being within the creation. And that then leads us to the final thing here. He gave to each creature its unique offices, And what that means is that he gave to each creature its unique place and purpose in the creation. So that there is in the creation this, uh, by the wisdom and power of God, an, uh, an interweaving of the creatures and an interdependence of the creatures. Each creature is not only unique from every other creature, but each creature serves other creatures in its own ways. Each creature is dependent also on the other creatures for its own existence and for the fulfillment of its own purpose in the creation. Psalm 104 talks about this. Psalm 104 We read in verses 11 and following this, they, that is the waters here, give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. So this is one of the purposes of the waters that the beasts of the field may drink. By them, the birds of the heavens have their home. They sing among the branches. Here's a purpose for the trees, that the birds can make their homes in them. He waters the hills from his upper chambers. The rain serves as a means to water the hills. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread which strengthens man's heart. So each, each creature of God has its own place and its own purpose according to the wisdom of God in the whole of the creation and serves others, other creatures, and is served in its turn by other creatures. But each creature also, I think, uh, as the confession indicates in that phrase, uh, that each, uh, he gives to each its offices to serve its creator. Each creature also declares the glory of God in its own unique way. So the heavens show us his infinity and his power. He holds the whole of the universe in the palm of his hand. Man shows forth, at least according to his original creation, the righteousness and holiness of God. The sparrows show his care even for the little things of his creation. The light declares to us that he is light to which no one 
can approach. All the creatures revealing then the glory of God, each in his own uh, unique way. The confession in Article uh, 2 says that we know God by two means, and the first means is by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, which is before our eyes as a most elegant book, wherein all creatures, great and small, are as so many characters leading us to see clearly his invisible attributes, even his eternal power and Godhead. So those then are the things I think that the confession points out to us with regard to this doctrine of creation. The triune God is the creator. He created from nothing. He did it when it seemed good to him, according to his pleasure. And he gave to each creature its being, shape, form, and several offices. Now you may have noticed as we were reading through the article that the article also includes this brief statement about providence. He still upholds and governs them by his eternal providence and infinite power for the service of mankind to the end that man may serve his God. But we'll touch on that when we get to Article 13, God willing, the article about the providence of God. The second part of the article then deals with the creation of the angels and the fall of Satan. Now it's very striking in Genesis chapter 1 that the only thing we read about heaven is in that first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created, of course, the sun, moon, and stars in the um, earthly heavens, but the spiritual heavens, the dwelling place of the angels, is not mentioned again in Genesis chapter 1. We know that he created the heaven where the angels dwell, then, in the beginning, and on that first day of creation. But that chapter tells us nothing more about heaven. It doesn't mention the angels either. Nevertheless, we know that God did create the heavens, and we know that God created the angels. But the focus of Genesis 1 is on the earth and on the earthly creation, the place where we dwell and the Stage, if you will, for God's work of salvation. We know that the heaven is different from the earth, that it's a spiritual rather than a material place, and that the angels themselves are pure spirits, and that we therefore cannot perceive them unless they make themselves visible to us. And that there is a great gulf between heaven and earth which we cannot cross except by the work of grace in Christ Jesus our Lord as he makes us new and heavenly creatures. God created the angels and he created 
a vast host of angels. Jesus said to his disciples when he rebuked them for trying to defend him in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you not know that my father could send more than 12 legions of angels to help me? And Psalm 68, verse 17, also speaks of the angels. Psalm 68, verse 17, as being numerous, very numerous. Chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai, in the holy place. There are different kinds of angels. It would be perhaps interesting sometime to uh, gather together the scriptural data on the angels and, and uh, do a study of that material, but for Today, this afternoon, we'll just do some high-level stuff. There are different kinds or ranks of angels. We know of the existence of the archangels, Michael and Gabriel. They are called archangels because they are chief or principal angels. That's what the word arch arch means, first or principal or chief angels. We know from the Old Testament that there were cherubim, And that God is enthroned upon the cherubim and seraphim who surround the throne of God and cover their faces with their wings crying, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 speaks, it seems anyway, of different angels when he talks about the armor of God. He introduces that passage with these words, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So he's talking about our spiritual enemies in this passage. But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So those Principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age are angels, fallen angels. You find another passage, therefore, I believe in Colossians 1, verse 16, to which I've already referred, when he says there that Christ created uh, all things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, He's probably referring to angels, the invisible uh, creatures of God, the thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. In Romans chapter 8, verse 38, probably another reference to different angels there. Romans 8, verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We do not know when God created the angels. 
We can speculate that he perhaps created them on the first day when he created the heavens, or on the sixth day when he created man, the other of his rational moral creatures, or on the third day when he created the heavenly bodies, the sun, moon, and stars, but those are all speculations. We do not know when he created them. They are creatures, mighty creatures. They belong to the heavenly realm. They are greater than us. They are the work of God's hands. And finally, we know that they are fearful in appearance. Whenever the angels appeared to men in any form other than as ordinary men, men were afraid and trembled before them. Remember what Luke 2 says, when the angels appeared to them to announce the birth of Christ, they were exceedingly afraid. And this was the common reaction of men to angels when they saw the glory of the angels. They were not like the angels we see depicted on Christmas cards and in Christmas ornaments and so on, of whom C.S. Lewis says in his introduction to, uh, or his preface to Screwtape Letters, that they look like they're about to say, they're there. They're not effeminate and weak and womanly and pleasant. They are fearful to the appearance of men. And finally, we can say a little bit about their purpose. The scriptures reveal actually quite a bit to us about the purpose of the angels. In Psalm 103, verse, verses 20 and 21, we have a general statement of the purpose, God's purpose in creating the angels. Psalm 103, verses 20 and 21. Bless the Lord, you his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you ministers of his, who do his pleasure. They are the servants of God. And they are the servants of God in two ways. I think especially two ways anyway. First, as messengers. We read of them in Hebrews chapter 2 that the law was communicated to Moses by angels. We know that the angels appeared in and brought to the prophets of God visions sometimes. Sometimes they appear in the visions which the prophets saw. Sometimes they were the means by which the visions came to the prophets. An angel came from God to announce the birth of Samson to his parents. The angel Gabriel himself came to Zacharias and to Mary to announce the births of John and of Jesus. So they are messengers. God sends them forth to reveal his word, his will to his people. But they are also, some of them anyway, warriors who fight on behalf of God's people. So in Revelation chapter 12, we find Michael and his angels fighting 
with the serpent and his angels and throwing the devil and his angels out of heaven after the ascension of Christ. And we read in that same connection that now the devil is enraged by his being thrown out of heaven and uh, seeks even more urgently to destroy the saints of God who are left on the earth. But we know that the angels are present here on earth also. We see them in Genesis 31, I think it is, defending Jacob from his brother Esau. Jacob saw the camp of the angels next to his own camp and called that place where he was encamped, Mahanaim, two camps, one camp of the angels and the other camp, his own camp. They defended Elijah when the Syrians came to take him in the city of Dothan. They are, as Hebrews 1 verse 14 tells us, the ministers of God sent forth to minister to the heirs of salvation. This is their purpose then in God's creation to serve his elect, his own people. And that's a very comforting thought when we think of how powerful the devil and his angels are, how we cannot see them and how they can influence us in ways that we can't observe, that the angels are there also to defend us from the devil and his angels as well as from evil men. The other part of this paragraph talks about the devil and his angels and what happened in that. The devil and his angels were created good, like the rest of the angels. They rebelled against God probably very soon after they were created and before Adam and Eve fell. Under the leadership of Satan, therefore, they began to work against God and to seek to frustrate God's work and to establish a kingdom of their own independently of the kingdom of God. Their fall was apparently different from the fall of man. We fell corporately in Adam. Adam sinned and we all sinned in Adam and fell in him. It seems that the angels were all created together in the beginning. There are no new additions to the uh, angels then since that first creation and they fell individually rather than corporately each making his own choice and God preserved then the elect angels from falling with Satan and his angels and those angels have since that time continued to serve him and the result of Satan's fall is that he is very depraved and his angels with him, that they are enemies of God and of all that is good, that they have made it their purpose to destroy the church and its members, and that they are condemned to everlasting torment and live in fear of it. I think it's rather striking that the article adds to the end of this um, paragraph that they daily expect their horrible torments. I think that probably the confession has reference there to that legion of angels 
whom Jesus cast out of a man, and who asked Jesus, have you come to destroy us before the time? They were terrified that Jesus was going to send them to hell before their time. And they asked permission instead to go into the herd of pigs. They will be cast into the lake of fire. So that's the very briefly then the second paragraph. And the third paragraph is a rejection of two errors. The error of the Sadducees. And the confession makes reference to this because Acts 23 verse 8 describes this error of the Sadducees for us. This is at the trial of the Apostle Paul before the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the leaders of the Jews. And the Sadducees, we read in verse 8, say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit. But the Pharisees confess both. So the Sadducees denied the existence of angels and spirits. And we reject that error. There are angels, both fallen angels and unfallen angels who are active in God's creation. The error of the Manichees is a different error. They do not deny the existence of angels or of the devil for that matter, but instead say that the devils and evil have their existence of themselves. That the devil, therefore, is not an angel who fell from his first estate, but is eternal as God is eternal. And that good and evil, God and Satan, are continually at war with each other. That's a different kind of error, but an error that we also reject. The devil is not equal to God. He does not have his existence of himself. He is a creature of God who has corrupted himself by his own choice and is therefore under the judgment and condemnation of God and will be destroyed in the end. Now for a few words about evolutionism. I think there are five things, and this is all I'm going to say about evolutionism. There are five errors of evolutionism which we have to guard against. So I'm going to begin with the least important and work up to the most important. The first error of evolutionism is that the earth is young, is old, very old. Millions and even billions of years. And of course this is necessary to the whole theory of evolution. You need enormous spans of time in their conception for evolution to take place. We reject that error of the evolutionists. And using the genealogies of Scripture, reckon that the earth is something like 6,000 years old, rather than millions or billions of years. But out of their theory also proceeds the denial that God uh, created in six days of 24 hours. They denied that God created. They therefore deny the six days of creation and some 
professing Christians have accepted this also, that there were long periods of time that are called days there in Genesis chapter 1. The scriptures teach us to think of them as days when they say that the evening and the morning were the first day, days of 24 hours, and there was no need for God to have long periods of time for his work of creation. He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. So we confess six days of 24 hours for the work of creation. They deny that God created the individual species of creatures. The theistic evolutionists might say that God created certain classes of creatures and then um, the rest evolved out of those original creatures or things of that sort. Or God created the first spark of life and all other living creatures have formed out of that first spark of life, things of that sort. God created each creature according to its own kind and caused it to bring forth according to its own kind, each of the living creatures according to its own kind. They deny, in the fourth place, the unique, <coughs> uniqueness of man. To evolutionists, man is just one of the animals, not essentially different than the rest of the animals, perhaps more advanced in the evolutionary process, but still to be wholly explained as part of the natural, the earthly creation, without a soul and without a spirit, and therefore not made in the image of God, as the king whom God set over the creation. Man was a special creation of God, we confess, made in his image, formed from the dust of the ground, but having the breath of life breathed into his nostrils by God himself, formed to have dominion over the creation and to serve him as king in that creation. That's the fourth error. And the fifth error is that ultimately, of course, evolution denies the existence of God himself. It is fundamentally an atheistic philosophy. Even if a a God exists, there is no need of him because he did not create and because he does not govern this universe according to his eternal power and wisdom. So, people of God, we confess God as the creator, creator of heaven and earth, the creator of ourselves. And we confess ourselves, therefore, as his creatures to whom we belong, body and soul, with whom he has the power to do as he wills, according to his own pleasure. 
We, looking at the creation, see not the work of many millions of years of evolution, but the handiwork of God himself. And we glorify him in that seeing of his work. We glorify him as great in power and wisdom. And when we see the creation, then we see also, and this is a thread of teaching throughout the scriptures, we see that great power and wisdom of God revealed in his creation as being at work also on our behalf to accomplish our salvation from this fallen world, to make us new creatures, and to bring us finally into the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. May God bless us with his words.